Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good news, true crime addicts. We survived another week. It's Friday, November 5th, 2021, and these are the top true crime stories in the world. No doubt about it, the top story this week was the abduction of four-year-old Cleo Smith. Now, this story comes at us from Western Australia, and uh, if you're like me in the States and you don't have your geography of Australia down pat, um, let me uh, summarize it for you. Australia. It's really, really big. Uh, And there's really two cities that people live around. There's Sydney in the east, and there's Perth in the west, and not much in between. Um, Cleo and her family lived in a a city called Carnivan, which is on the western coast, up north from Perth. And Cleo uh, went on a weekend camping trip with her mother and stepfather at Blowholes Campsite. That's in McLeod, a little north of Carnivan. And uh, they woke up around 6 a.m. on October 16th to find Cleo was gone. Her sleeping bag was missing, too. The tent was unzipped. The position of the zipper seemed to be too high for Cleo to have reached. Anyways, they called police. At first, the police treated it like a recovery operation, assuming the girl had maybe wandered off from the campsite. They didn't really know what had happened. It quickly became apparent that something more was going on. And uh, just in the last week, online sleuths had really picked up this story and uh, were really starting to hone in and make some serious allegations against her mother and stepfather. And then, surprise, in the early morning hours uh, just this Thursday, police rescued Cleo from the home of 36-year-old Terrence Daryl Kelly, and he lived near Cleo's family in Carnivan. And um, when they busted through his door, found her in the house alone. She was in her lighted room playing with toys. They uh, pulled Terrence Kelly over. I don't think it was too far away. And uh, arrested him. And uh, he's he's sitting in, 
in in jail awaiting hearings now. Uh, and, you know, of course, since the arrest, the first thing everybody does these days is go on social media and try to see what he was up to. And this guy was on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, some of his posts are extremely creepy. Um, Terrence Kelly collected uh, Bratz dolls. This is according to Sydney, the Sydney Morning Herald. This guy, and they showed his picture, this guy kind of looks like um, Michael Jackson, you know, after the after the Jackson five days when he's kind of transitioning into this um, kind of androgynous character with the with the with the with the curls the the wet curls hanging down he's got this kind of like made up face um, it just you know just kind of weird just kind of weird looking for a 36 year old uh, anyways he had an obsession with collecting dolls especially collecting brats dolls um, and he would post pictures of himself shirtless driving these dolls around town. This is a quote from one of its Insta, Insta posts. I love taking my dolls for drive arounds. I love taking my dolls for drive arounds and doing their hair and taking selfies in public. Nothing beats chilling at home with my Bratz dolls. Uh, so that's, that's creepy. Um, they showed a picture of a room in his house that's, uh, you know, sometimes you see those pictures of people that collect Star Wars merchandise and they have these things still in boxes and they fill up a room a room in their house. Well, that's kind of what this guy did with with um with these different dolls made for made for little girls. So, what is the ultimate uh goal for this guy? What was what was he what was he attempting with Cleo? Um something tells me that this isn't your your typical um, offender who was after after a little girl. It almost appears, and you know we're, the the story's going to come out in the next weeks and maybe years. But to me, I wonder if this guy wasn't trying to essentially uh, collect his own living doll. Um, whatever his intention, uh, it would have ended very badly if not for the work of. Of the police, um, they did some excellent forensic work. It sounds like they uh, got a sighting of Terrence's car near the campsite, and then were able to do some some good work with cell phones to figure out if he was in the area, and then track him back to his apartment. So nice work there. Um, this is this is definitely a weird one. Another big story this week concerns the um, uh, upcoming trial of Ahmad Arbery. This is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They have some disturbing news from the uh, Ahmed Arbery case. Um, defense lawyers there have clearly used their legal abilities to build a mostly white jury for this racially charged case. Now, um, a little background. Uh, February 23rd, 2020, 25-year-old Ahmad he was out jogging around Glen County, Georgia, in this uh, suburb, when uh, three white hillbillies, uh, Travis McMichael, his father Gregory, who was a former police officer, and this other guy, William Roddy Bryan, started following him around. And um, The McMichaels were in one vehicle, a pickup, and Bryan was in another. And uh, Travis gets out of the truck, confronts Arbery as he's jogging, and uh, Travis has a shotgun there's a confrontation. Arbery and Travis start fighting. Travis allegedly shoots and kills Arbery. 
this guy just out for a jog. Now, we later learned that uh, uh, Arbery was seen on surveillance video going into a construction site, and a lot was made about that because the McMichaels were apparently after some vigilante justice due to a, a, a bout of recent break-ins. I guess a gun was stolen from a, I don't know, a car or truck or something there. And um, people had been seen going into this construction site. They were building a house, not the McMichaels, another guy was building a house nearby, and the house was kind of open. The slats were open, and people could walk in. And uh, Ahmad was actually seen on camera walking in to this uh, house that was under construction. Now, a lot of people made a, a big deal about that. Oh, he must have been breaking in. But if you see the tapes, first of all, he's not the only person that goes in. You know, this this family goes in to check it out. Oh, hey, look, look what they're building. Um, there's another person that comes in and out. You know, he was one of like five or six people that did this. And uh, the thing you should know about Arbery is he was studying to be an electrician. Uh, and if you look at the tapes, he doesn't clearly doesn't take anything. It almost looks like he's looking to see how they're wiring the place. So um, anyways, he's jogging, is confronted, killed with a shotgun. Um, jogging while black. Uh, and it seemed for a while nothing was going to happen at all. You know, the McMichaels were, you know, the Gregory McMichael was a former police officer. The prosecutor didn't seem like they wanted to pursue it. And then turns out somebody had actually caught the shooting on camera, and that video went viral. And then they had to convene a grand jury, and the McMichaels and Brian were indicted for felony murder. Um, so now what what the defense what the defense did in this case um, has to do with voir dire, uh, part of the process where they bring in a pool of potential jurors and they whittle them down to the twelve jurors that sit on the trial. In this case, they brought in forty eight jurors. Of those forty eight, twelve were black, thirty six were white. The defense was allowed to eliminate up to 24 jurors for whatever reason they, they wanted. They immediately eliminated 11 of the 12 black potential jurors. So now we end up with a jury of 12, 11 of which are white, and they are supposed to decide the fate of these three men who uh, killed this black man out for a job, a jog. In, uh, in Georgia. So I expect that may lead to some protests and uh, certainly will be a story in the news for the weeks to come. Uh, final big story this week concerns Jetpack Man. Have, have you heard about this crazy story out of California? Um, there appears to be a man flying around in a jetpack Pilots coming in to Los Angeles International Airport have reported sightings of a man in a jetpack cruising around at high altitudes. It would be, of course, highly illegal for someone, some thrill seeker, to be zooming around LAX and bothering pilots. And uh, just this week, according to the New York Times, the FBI has suggested that what the pilots have been seeing could just be human-shaped balloons. The FAA made public images this week uh, that were captured by a helicopter crew just after Halloween last year. This That would be in 2020. And the pictures are clearly Jack Skelton from Nightmare Before Christmas 
just kind of chilling above Los Angeles. Um, but that that's not what the other pilots saw, according to earlier reports. The first sighting was in August 2020. Pilots reported a man in a jetpack flying around at 3,000 feet, about 300 yards off their left side. Six weeks after that, the crew of a the crew of a commercial airliner reported a man in a jetpack flying around at 6,000 feet. That's really, really, really high, by the way. We do not have the technology to do that. Jetpacks that we have nowadays, they can fly around for like three minutes. Uh, nobody's going to go cruising at 6,000 feet because you're going to run out of gas. And then you're, <laughs> you, you know, unless you really are Iron Man, you're dead. So, and then last July, there was a third sighting, and uh, a pilot was recorded saying, possible jetpack jet man in sight, we're looking for the Iron Man. So, uh, this could be a rich um, man with, with the means and, and motive and opportunity to design his own Iron Man suit. Uh, we, we don't know yet. Um, but certainly a weird story, and nobody seems to be buying that all this was just a nightmare before Christmas balloons. So uh, I'll be back in 2 and 2 with some updates and some unsolved cases. And we're back. Uh, the Okay, so I want to go over some uh, updates in some cold cases here. And at the top of the list is a case that's really important to me. It concerns the uh, unsolved murder of Barbara Blatnick. Um, now, a, a little background here. Barbara Blatnick was 17 years old on December 19, 1987. She was uh, living in Garfield Heights, and she was a bit of a party girl. Uh, you look at the pictures of her, and she's got this like classic, iconic 80s look with the feathered hair. And, um, you know, she, she liked to go out and have a good time. She, she drank, she smoked a little pot. Um, nothing big. But that night, December 19th, 1987, she went out to a party with a couple friends. Her friends dropped her off at the corner of uh, Grand, Division, uh, Grand Division and Warner, which is a big crossroads there in Garfield Heights. And she was going to walk to her boyfriend's house. And it, it seems as though she might have actually made it to her boyfriend's house, knocked on the door. He didn't answer. And maybe she was walking home, but uh, she disappeared and her body was found just hours later. Uh, she had been dumped by Blossom Music Center, which is technically in Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga Falls, um, here in, uh, in, in northeastern Ohio. And that's a little ways away from Garfield Heights. So she was transported there, and her body found uh, near Blossom Music Center. And, you know, the case went cold. You know, we couldn't, they couldn't find out who did it. Um, when I started up the Porchlight Project a couple years ago, this was the first big case we took. And uh, the Cuyahoga Falls Police shared with us DNA that was found underneath Barb Blatnick's fingernails. It was a mixture of her DNA and the killer's DNA, who they assume was the killer. We worked with Colleen Fitzpatrick and Identifinders International and the genealogists there. And uh, we were able to trace... The genetic profile found under Barb's fingerprints to a man named James Zastonic, 
who lived in Cleveland, lived really close to where Barbara Blatnick was last seen, worked nearby uh, in 1987. He was never really on the police's radar, uh, but they, the police arrested him for Barb's murder in May of 2020. His trial kept getting delayed over and over because of COVID, though. And he was scheduled to go on trial this year, uh, but then he died of cancer in August, just uh, just a couple months ago. So he never did get his day in court, and that leave, left people believing, you know, everything. You're wondering, you know, how was this the right man? And of course, it was. You know, DNA doesn't lie. But what else did the police have? Now, Phil Trexler, who's on the board of the Porchlight Project, he's also the news, one of the news directors at WKYC, the TV station in Cleveland. He discovered audio taken from the jailhouse after Zastonic's arrest. And this is a phone call between James Zastonic and his sister, in which he admits to picking up the teenager and having sex with her the day of the murder. Now, this is very important for a couple reasons. One, um, the biggest part is he had already been interviewed by police, and he had told police he didn't know Barbara Blatnick, never met her, had no idea what they were talking about. And, and you know, when he realized that we found him with genetic genealogy, he realized he had to explain away why there was DNA, why his DNA was on this dead girl. And so this is this is what he tells his sister. I'm going to play you the clip right now. I was coming down Warner Road. I seen her walking. I said, hey, it's cold. Do you want to ride? Yeah. So she says, do you live close to here? And I said, yeah. She says, can I use your phone? So I took her over to the house. So I was living on Avondale. I put her on the phone. She got in a big argument with somebody and slammed the phone down and started crying. One thing led to another, and we ended up in the bed. But the last time I saw her, I dropped her at the corner of Grand Division and Warner Road. Okay. That was the last time I saw her. So that's why right. my DNA got all over her. So as you can see, uh, James S. Tonic, uh, guilty as sin, as we expected. Another case solved in my opinion, by genetic genealogy. Let's solve some more this year. Uh, this is another interesting story involving a, um, uh, a long, cold case. This uh, journalist, Alexander McDougall, he's with the Bangor Daily News, he unearthed some new clues this week in the mysterious story of one Christopher Roof. In case you've never heard of this one, and I hadn't, uh, it's just fantastic, and I, I think would make... Um, an excellent new Netflix special. I could see this um, <laughs> going on for several episodes because it's just so weird. Christopher Roof was a beloved substitute teacher at Concord Carlisle High School. That's in Concord, Mass. And he also taught Sunday school in that town. He was quiet, kind-hearted, um, wrote poetry, wrote books in his spare time. And on August thirtieth, two 2010... Roof turned the keys uh, to his apartment. He turned them into his realtor, and then he disappeared. Uh, after a while, former students of his started a Facebook page called Where is Mr. Roof, according to the Concord Journal. 
One former student, Sydney Cop, was listening to the podcast True Crime Bullshit earlier this year when the host talked about an unidentified John Doe that had been found in the state of Maine, about 400 miles away from where Roof was last seen. A hunter had discovered human remains in the woods in the town of Stacyville, Maine, on November 4, 2010, and near the remains was a hat with the word Chris on it. The student called Maine State Police in August of this year and told them that she thought it could be her missing teacher. Sure enough, forensic testing revealed it was, in fact, the body of Christopher Roof. No cause of death has been determined, and that would be strange enough as it is. But here's where it gets weirder. Christopher's mother was a woman named Marcia Moore, and she was the heir to the Sheraton Hotel fortune, and she herself disappeared. Her remains were later found in the woods, her cause of death undetermined. Anyway, McDougall's report for the Bangor Daily News, he, he dives into this new book about Marcia Moore. You may want to check it out if you're interested. It's called Dematerialized, The Disappearance of Marcia Moore. And uh, in the book, he writes, the book itself reveals much about this eccentric family. For instance, Marcia was married five times and was an author herself. She wrote mostly about astrology and yoga, kind of a hippy-dippy uh, woman. She was into the drug culture of the time, and she tried to get her son to try ketamine, a powerful anesthetic. Her son was especially close to his mother, and they spent some of their favorite times in Maine, not far from where his body was found. Christopher himself was not reported missing by the family because uh, they thought that he just kind of lit out into the woods and was living like Henry David Thoreau, the way he told them he might do one day, going to live in the woods and get, get, get together with nature. So just very odd that this man and his mother, both very strange people in their own right, both writers, both poets, both into kind of the spirituality realm, uh, went missing and then remains found. Nobody knows how they how they died, although um, there's some evidence to suggest possible suicide, and Christopher himself had not ruled out the fact that the possibility, that is, that his mother might have committed suicide. Um, one last little bit uh, concerning some old cases. Unfortunately, the uh, Tiger King himself has been diagnosed with an aggressive form of prostate cancer. Uh, we wish him well. Uh, genetic genealogy news. We're back to Identifinders International. That's that group led by Colleen Fitzpatrick, who helped us out with the Barblatnik case. She solved another cold case. This one is a 60-year-old mystery. According to a report in the Charlotte Observer, a teenage boy was hitchhiking through Alabama in March 1961, and he died in a car crash and was buried in a grave marked unknown. Kind of a big mystery for a small town out there. Um, he died when the car crashed on Riverbend Road and sank into the Cahaba River. And, you know, so this, this hitchhiker was picked up. Nobody knew who he was to begin with. And then he dies in this car crash. Sounds like the beginning of a, of a Bones episode or something. Anyways, uh, Identifiers International identified him as Daniel Armentrout, age 15, at the time of his death. And they verified this when they tracked down his brother, who is now 77 years old. 
and his brother was happy to have some closure after all these years, wondering what had happened to his brother, only for them to discover that he has another brother who is still missing, so we're still searching for one more member of that family. Uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Reddit, and it's un Unresolved Mysteries subreddit. You can always find interesting stories out of there. This one comes from user randomhorror99, randomhorror99. And um, this is a, a story that I knew, but I didn't know all of it. Um, concerns Dan Rather. So Saturday, October 4th, 1986, anchorman Dan Rather was walking in the Upper East Side of Manhattan when he was assaulted by two men. You know Dan Rather, like the, the iconic journalist who's been with us for like 50 years. That Dan Rather. And he was assaulted by two men. One of them kept yelling, Kenneth, what is the frequency? And they punched him, they chased him. And these people, they weren't homeless or anything like that. They seemed to be, both of these men that assaulted Dan Rather were well-dressed. They wore dark suits and ties. And they got away. And uh, that attack was the basis of the R.E.M. song, What's the Frequency, Kenneth, that was big in the, in the 90s. I know I listened to it in my, in my Hyundai, cruising around, cruising around the roads of Ohio. Um, the next part of the story takes place August 31st, 1994, outside the windows of the Today Show, when a man tried to storm the studio armed with a rifle. There was a, a tussle. He shot and killed stagehand Campbell Montgomery. Police arrested this guy and ID'd him as one William Tagger of North Carolina. And uh, Tagger claimed that NBC was beaming transmissions directly into his brain. Tagger later told a prison shrink that he was actually a time traveler from the year 2265. And in 2265, he was a convicted felon. And the government had gave him a deal to go back in time and test this new technology. Only when he got here, he bumped into this guy on the Upper East Side. And if you're going to time travel, why not go to the Upper East Side? That seems about right. Anyways, he came back, and he, and he, he saw this guy in the Upper East Side, and he, and he thought he mistook him for the vice president from 2020, uh, 2265. Apparently, the vice president at the time was a guy named Kenneth Burroughs. And he thought that Dan Rather was this Kenneth Burroughs. Apparently, they, they looked a lot alike, and so he tried to kill him. Um, but the Redditor who posted this, he posits another theory for the attack that makes a lot of sense, a lot more sense than a time traveler. Uh, at the time of the attack, at the time, at the time that Dan Rather was attacked, there was this music publicist who had figured out a way to hack into Russian broadcasts during the Cold War. That man was named Kenneth Schaefer. And, and by getting those Russian broadcasts, it gave us a peek behind the Iron Curtain. This was a big deal. We were able to get a lot of information, even though it was like cartoons and news broadcasts, things like that. Um, but it was, it was really important. This guy named Kenneth Schaefer had figured out a way to do this. And uh, his intercepted broadcasts were housed at Columbia University. On the day of the attack, who viewed Kenneth Schaefer's archives? You guessed it, Dan Rather. Um, and the Redditor posits that uh, this, this tagger guy might have mistaken Rather 
for Schaefer, seeing Schaefer in his collection walking out and um, mistaking the two. So um, was it a case of mistaken identity? Did he think he was attacking this Kenneth Schaefer? Or was he a time traveler from the year 2265? Uh, you can make up your own mind there. Uh, checking the charts, this is through char- Chartable.com, who keeps track of the true crime podcasts. A uh, new number one on the list, Over My Dead Body. Uh, the podcast Over My Dead Body, if you haven't listened to it, give it a listen. They're on season three. And this is the write-up on it. A small-town cop is gunned down in a swamp in the summer of 2015. He quickly became a martyr in the national media until a dogged investigator... Is there any other kind? Until a dogged investigator uncovered the officer's bizarre and dark past. When the truth comes out, the townspeople must reconcile betrayal, corruption, and the secrets of an American hero. That sounds pretty good. Uh, Also, a new one um, I noticed in the top ten. This is... Currently charting at number four, podcast Believe Her, and this is what it's about. In September 2017, Nikki Adimondo, a young mom of two, shot her partner of nine years, Chris Glover. Grover, sorry, Chris Grover. Nikki was sentenced to 19 years to life in prison for murder, but she claimed she was acting in self-defense. In this first episode, journalist Justine Vanderloon takes us on a journey that starts with the night of the killing and ends at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in upstate New York. Count me in. Um, regarding pop culture and true crime, I do want to mention that uh, if you're a fan of true crime and books and podcasts, you're going to want to check out CrimeCon. Um, it's a, an annual true crime convention. They, you know, You can meet your podcasters. You can meet your authors. They also have these panels of, you know, people from Nancy Grace to, um, last time I was at one, I met the daughter of BTK, Uh, a lot of people that have been impacted by these real life true crimes talking about their ordeals. Um, so coming up, you might want to book your tickets. CrimeCon Vegas happens April 29th through May 1st. And CrimeCon UK is in London again next year, June 11th and 12th. And uh, if you want to go, I'll be there. Use my uh, code TPOC, that's for The Philosophy of Crime, my other podcast, TPOC22. That's the code. It'll give you a little discount. And in the meantime, I hope everybody's using the new app, Repod. Uh, It's the best place for you to meet up and have conversations with your favorite podcasters. There's message boards. It's... um, a good way to listen to your podcast. It's it's really cool. So check it out, Repod. Uh, and in the words of the incomparable Murray Saul, once again, it is Friday, and that means we gotta 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 get down. Damn it! True Crime This Week is a fearful symmetry production. Our theme music is Trash Town Boogie by Mr. Smith, used under a Creative Commons license for use in this show. All sources are listed in the liner notes at the end of this episode. If you like the cut of my jib, please check out my other podcast, Philosophy of Crime. Unless quoted directly from a source, all content should be considered the opinion of the host. That's me, James Renner. See you next week.